Okay, all right. Good evening, everybody. Our topic for tonight is Where's Yasala? So, in a series that talks about Israel's clandestine activities, uh, those missions undertaken by the secretive services, the Mossad, the Shin Bet, the Amman, uh, this is one of the unusual ones, really unusual ones. Normally, the target is some adversary of Medinat Yisrael, of the state of Israel, whether it's you know Palestinian terrorists or uh, state, you know, some Nazis, uh, uh, war criminals, or foreign states that are acting out against Israel. This was where we got to find a Jew. Where's Yosela? Yosela Schumacher, a little boy taken captive by his own grandfather and then sent they didn't know where until they found him in Brooklyn, New York. So this this story is about one of the most fascinating women in the history of in 20th century history of Judaism. A woman by the name of Ruth Ben David or Ruth Blau. The most peculiar woman in 20th century Judaism. So she begins her life as a non-Jew in France. Her born name was Madeleine Lucette Ferre, and she was born in Paris in 1920 to a Catholic family. Uh, she's a woman of many contradictions, and we're not exactly sure what her innermost sentiments were. But she grew up in a sort of a broken home, had a bad relationship with her father, an unpleasant childhood. Um, later, she would claim that her maternal grandmother was a crypto Jew, but they all claim that after they convert to Judaism because they want to attach something to biological Israel. And um, she, in 1939, married a man by the name of Henry Baud. And she had a son born to her by the name of Claude in 1940. Henry was shallow and Madeline was, was deep. She was it was not not a good shidduch, not a good match, and so they divorced in 1942. Um, Henry and Claude would not see each other again for the next 70 years. They'd have a reunion, father and son, when the father was in his 90s. But Ruth was the antithesis of everything that Vichy France stood for. She was divorced, was single with a child had an education, had ambition. Vichy France during the war wanted their women to be homemakers and homemakers only and traditional in values. So Madeline Lucette, or Ruth as we'll call her throughout this story because she changes her name to Ruth, uh, she ends up working for the French resistance. She doesn't like the Nazis. She's anti-communist, but she's anti-fascist. And she goes on rescue missions to save Jews. In fact, goes on a very dangerous rescue mission in September of 1943 to save a few Jews. She then becomes the mistress of a Captain Martin of the SS from the Das Reich unit. And she infiltrates the SS. She infiltrates the Gestapo. For what purpose? To get secrets for the French resistance. And when the war was over, or rather when the Allies defeated the Nazis in France, um, Ruth was arrested. She was arrested for having conspired with the enemy. And after five days, she was finally released from prison. She probably was tortured. And tried. To, they tried to get her to confess, but there was nothing to confess. She was playing for the right team. She just had to go undercover uh, by developing a relationship with a, 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 you know, a prominent figure in the Gestapo. So she moved back to Paris in January of 1945. Her mother died. She kind of had a falling out with her family. And she joined the French uh, Secret Service in 1946 and was sent on a spy mission to North Africa. She went to Morocco to spy on an Italian fascist. And while she was there, she decided to get into the rug business. It's good business. Import-export business is a perfect cover for spies. Okay, legitimate business, but really, you're engaged in espionage. Okay, so international trade became 
her way to make a parnasa, a livelihood. Her official job was that she was a copy editor for the Ministry of Aviation, some nonsense like that. She used her sexuality and her intelligence to her advantage. She was a very beautiful woman, or at least that's what a lot of the rabbis thought. Every rabbi who fell in love with her wanted to marry her. So she enrolled in the Sorbonne, was a student. She studied theology and the classics, a great intellectual. Um, her import-export business was chemicals and textiles, and she was doing pretty well for herself. But she was, began to be estranged from Catholicism. She didn't like Catholicism anymore. She was attracted, at least a little, for a little while, to Seventh-day Adventism. Now, if you get attracted to Seventh-day Adventism, what's the next logical step? If you're going to keep Shabbos, you might as well be Jewish. Okay, so Judaism is the next thing. Um, her friends were very secular. Friends were very secular. And she wanted to find solace in religion. But her friends were not of that variety. And so she went on a spiritual journey. Uh, her business suffered some setbacks and she was a little bit depressed. Her friend got sick. She prayed for uh, um, her recovery. And the friend got better as soon as she prayed. So she figured, oh, must be God listens to my prayers. God is listening to my prayers. And there must be a real deity upstairs. Um, in 1951, she decided permanently to uh, abandon Christianity in all, in all its varieties. Get rid of Christianity in all its varieties. And find comfort permanently in Judaism. After all, Augustine, the great church father, had in her mind falsified the Gospels, but that the Hebrew Bible was the true Bible. The Hebrew Bible is the true Bible. And she met a few Israelis at the Paris Library, including a man by the name of Harpaz, who would go on to become a professor of French at Hebrew University. And they fell in love, and she wanted, he wanted to marry her. She wasn't sure if she wanted to marry him. So she traveled to Israel for the first time in the spring of 1951. And she decided to convert to Judaism, but to reform Judaism in order to marry an Israeli man. Well, she really wasn't interested in Zionism. She was interested in Judaism. She wanted religion, not political nationalism. So Israel was like a mixed bag for her. Yes, she liked it, but she didn't like the nationalistic aspect of it. She liked the spiritual side of it. And so she converted to Judaism under reform auspices. She circumcised her son, Claude, and she went to the mikveh. The boy went to the mikveh, and she took on the name Ruth ben David. Why Ruth ben David? Okay, Ruth from the story of the book of Ruth is a convert to Judaism. Ben David, because Ruth is the great-grandmother of David. Fine, very nice. But then she broke up with the Israeli boyfriend and decided that Reform Judaism wasn't for her. She needed a more intense form of religious uh, observance. So in May of 1952, she went on to the Mizrahi, the French consistoire-type Judaism, modern orthodoxy in France, Zionist modern orthodoxy. And she developed a relationship with a rabbi, John Polyacek. John Polyacek. But this relationship was not just that of rabbi-disciple, but rather of boyfriend and girlfriend, because that's just what happens. And the rabbi fell in love with her. He wanted to marry her. But there's a problem. What's the problem? She's a reformed convert, which in the eyes of orthodoxy means she ain't even Jewish. So we got to resolve that problem. She's going to have to go into the mikveh again. Okay, fine. So she'll have to do a, a, a redo of her conversion under Orthodox auspices and get married to this rabbi outside of France because there's too much of a tumult. It's a scandal. It's a scandal. In, in France, go to Israel and have the chuppah, away from all the action. So similarly, 10 years later, in a story that is not really connected to our Where's Yasla story for tonight, she would marry the head of the Naturi Karta, Rabbi Blau, Amram Blau, 10 years later, and it would be a big scandal. And she, here she's, a convert is marrying a rabbi, they'll have to do the chuppah somewhere out of town because uh, people are upset and they're going to throw a fuss. So the only rabbi who really supported her on her journey was Rabbi Mises, a very ultra-Orthodox rabbi in the Naturi Karta orbit. Well, she was distracted by all the Lashon Hara and gossiping associated with her, and her business suffered as a result. So 
That was her excuse for not paying taxes for a while. And she was arrested and spent two months in prison. So here she was a tax cheat, but she claims because it was uh, I was all confused. My, my business, my Jewish business partner messed me over. Um, or I was, was, wasn't paying attention. It was my fault. I didn't mean, I didn't mean to cheat. And her faith in Judaism could have been shaken by suffering and imprisonment. But actually, her faith in Judaism was only strengthened by it, despite the fact that she had Jewish business partners who supposedly cheated her. And when, you, when you're a convert to Judaism and you're stabbed in the back by a fellow you know, co-religionist, a, a native-born Jew, the temptation is to, to sour on your co-religionists and turn your back on them. But no, no, she didn't. And so she had her Orthodox conversion in 1953, and Claude, the son, also had a conversion, and he changed his name to Uriel. So he's Uriel ben David now. Ruth moved to Israel in May of 53, and was able to register as an approved convert. So the state of Israel recognized her Jewish status. But then her engagement was broken. Another, another broken engagement to a Jewish man called it off before the chuppah. Uriel stayed in Israel, but Ruth went back to France, and she didn't see her son for about a year. She wasn't a very good mother. She was actually a pretty horrible mother when you come to think of it. And what she would do to someone else's kid is even worse. In 1954, she decided that modern orthodoxy wasn't enough for her. And, she, and the, the, the Yavna Yeshiva of her son also wasn't good enough. She wanted Faredi Judaism. She felt that spirituality is the way to go, and that Zionism uh, is incorrect, and that the Zionists are appealing to ethnic Jews with the the nationalistic flavor. But the true Judaism is devoid of all that; is just godliness. And so she moves on to the most fundamentalist of all Jewish sects, beyond the Agudas Yisrael, the Naturei Karta, the, the guardians of the city. Ultra, ultra, ultra orthodox. Um, at first, she had some problems with Haredi Judaism. She didn't like the Tznias standards. Okay, they didn't like the Tznias standards. She she had to cover her hair and her, her legs and her arms, and she was not a, not accustomed to that. She was a French Gentile woman who was accustomed to loose attire and not to be all bound up. Well, she went to Antwerp. And she liked the Antwerp Hasidic community. But as soon as they found out she was a convert, they kicked her out. Now again, what happens when a convert is mistreated by the indigenous Jewish community? The convert can say, to hell with all this, I'll go back to being a goy or a shiksa. But that didn't happen to her. Every time she was mistreated, it just intensified her religious fervor. Okay. In November of 59, uh, Norman is asking, uh, was she still a spy? Is that Norman? I'm not sure who's asking that. Yeah. Um, not yet. So she's not a, she was a spy for the French. She's not a spy at this point, but she may become one again. We're going to see soon enough. In November of 59, her son decides to get married at the age of 19. Okay, fine. Uh, Ruth decides, okay, I'll make Aliyah to Israel. My son is in Israel. I'll go Aliyah to Israel. But first, I want to travel. And why is it necessary to travel before you make Aliyah in 1959? Because if you travel on an Israeli passport, there are lots of places you can't go. But if you travel on a French passport or a Belgian passport, which is what she had, then the sky's the limit. So what did she do? She went to uh, to East Jerusalem, and she davened in March of 1960 at the Kotel. She davened in March of 1960 at the Kotel. Now, are there any Park Easters listening tonight? I see Elise, 5G. Elise is listening. There may be others. I don't know if Betsy's listening. So uh, you may remember Marsha Goldsmith of Blessed Memory, beloved Marsha, uh, whose 10th t- yard site is coming up pretty soon. Marsha went to the Kotel in 1963. How could you do that before the Six-Day War? The answer is on an American passport without any Israeli stamps in it. You as an American citizen could go to, to Jordan and from Jordan to the West Bank to East Jerusalem and go to the Kotel. It was not exactly what we have today, but it, you could go there. So um, so Ruth went to the Kotel and she went to Marta Machpelah, the cave of the patriarchs. She went to Kever Rachel, all the greats, you know, Hebron, Beit Lechem, all the places we take for granted now post-Six-Day War. She went in 1960. Okay. And then she went through Mandelbaum Gate to cross over into Western Israeli Jerusalem. And she met her son. 
and she went to the, to the Nuturi Karta headquarters in Meisharim, and she would set up shop in Meisharim. Okay, well, um, Ruth may have converted uh, out of the uh, guilt of her association with the Gestapo. And being laughed at and stared at on the streets of Jerusalem, she always been called the Gyrus, the convert. Um, probably troubled her, but there was a certain guilt factor. And the sociological studies of converts in mid-20th century indicate that there were a bunch of people in Europe who felt remorse over what the European continent, what European Christendom had done to the Jewish community, that their only method for absolution was to themselves become Jews. That may have been part of her motivation, aside from the boyfriend here, the boyfriend there, who was a Jew. Okay. Now, let's get to Yossela. Enough about Ruth. Now let's talk about Yossela. So Alter Schumacher, Yossela's father, Alter Schumacher, married Ida Starks, in Kazakhstan in 1945. What are Jews doing in Kazakhstan in 1945? The answer is Jews from Russia, Poland, who were expelled eastward at the beginning of the World World War II, a lot of them ended up in the in the Central European republics, including Kazakhstan, after the war was over. So Ida was the daughter of Nachman and Miriam Stocks. And Nachman had spent time in a Soviet prison before the war for practicing Judaism. So he was a real Starker. Nothing could stop him from, from Torah, 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 and mitzvahs, mitzvahs, mitzvahs. So Nachman and Miriam moved to the Breslover uh, community in Me'a Sharon in 1957, and Ida and Alter moved together with them from Poland, but they moved to Naharia, okay, up north. Yasela and Zina were the children of Ida and Alter, but they went to live with their grandparents because of economic conditions. The father didn't have a job right away. There wasn't a good apartment with enough space. So the kids were being raised temporarily by the grandparents. But then Ida and Alter moved to Tel Aviv in 1959, and Ida wanted her kids back. Okay, we have a bigger apartment. My husband has a job. It's a more stable situation. So mommy and daddy, give me my kids back. So Nachman and Miriam gave back the daughter, Zina. But they said, the son, let him stay till after Sukkot, after Yontif. And then we'll give him back to you. But then comes after Sukkot, they don't give him back. Oh, it's a bad, it's a bad weather out today. You'll get a catch of cold. Let him stay another day, another day, another Shabbos. Always excuses. Ida eventually realizes her kid was kidnapped by her own parents. So she went to the Rabbanut for arbitration. But what's the problem with going to the official Rabbanut? If your father is in a Trey from Breslov, living in Meisharim, they don't they don't respect the Rabbanut. They 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 see the Rabbanut as treif, so it's not going to help. Uh, so Ida goes to the police, and uh, they say, "Okay, fine, we'll try to help you." It ends up in court, and Nachman says that Yossela's parents were absentee parents, and that Yossela wants to stay with his grandfather and that they opposed the parents' plan to go back to Russia. And this is the, the key point. The, the grandparents asserted, and the, the rabbis who supported the grandparents' decision to kidnap the kid, all claimed that the parents, um, Ida and, and, and Alter, were planning on leaving Israel, going back to Poland or Russia, and leading a life of communism and atheism, godless atheism, back in Europe. Was there any truth to this? None. It was made up. But did they really believe it? Who knows? I wasn't there. I can't get into the head of Grandpa Stocks. But maybe he did believe it. But there was absolutely no real basis for him to assert that. But it was a way of claiming, oh, my kids are trafe. They can't raise their own child. I have to raise my grandson. I will not give him up under any circumstances. Okay. So on January 15th, 1960, the court ordered the boy returned within five days. Nachman refused. By July 1960, he was arrested and held in contempt. And, and he was going to be held until Yossela was returned. But that didn't work out. Yossela wasn't returned, and they ended up feeling bad that the grandpa was sitting in jail. They released him. The police tried every angle, including, including getting famous Haredi rabbis to influence Grandpa Nachman to say, you know, it's, it's pasnish, you shouldn't do this. You, you, you can't, you can't kidnap your grandson. You know, give him up. 
They tried to convince the Haredi rabbis, but it, it, it didn't help. Going to Shelfen. Rabbi Tzvi Pesach Frank, who was the chief rabbi of Jerusalem and died shortly thereafter, but a month later, he was told that the parents were going to go back to Russia and raise the kid as a communist. And so he said, it's permissible, it's mutter for the grandfather to, ki- to kidnap the grandson. So the chief rabbi of Jerusalem said it's kosher to kidnap the kid. Okay, well, that, that carries a lot of weight, Rabbi Tzvi Pesach. Now, negotiations throughout the first half of 1960 centered largely on whether, whether they could give back the child to the parents if the parents would agree to put the kid in a Haredi yeshiva. Like what kind of yeshiva? The Mir yeshiva? The, uh, the Panovich yeshiva? Some big name Haredi yeshiva. And yet, despite that, the, the, the negotiations were not successful. The Haredi community turned against the police. The police went looking in the religious neighborhoods. And what would what would uh, people do to try to thwart the police? Parents with young children on the streets of B'nai Brak, of Yerushalayim and elsewhere, would yell when the police were coming, Yasala, Yasala, so that everybody was a Yasala, so that the actual Yasala wouldn't stand out and that nobody could find it. So, so thousands of Haredi Jews were complicit in this effort to conceal the kid from the authorities. Uh, there was a fight on Purim when the police entered to the yeshiva to look for the kid. Things were getting ugly. Rabbi Mises, who supported, who was a friend of Ruth, and Ruth is not yet in the story yet, uh, called the police the Gestapo and the Inquisition, and it's the pogrom. Every word, okay, I have a few of my kids uh, uh, um, who, who just got their, te- their test back from, from 12th grade are listening tonight, Ethan, Leon, the others, Shirel. So we learned about these things, the Gestapo, the Inquisition, the pogroms. Here the Haredi rabbi is saying that the Israeli police are the, are the Gestapo. Okay, and Jacob Berland is here too. Good. Now, well, in, in a situation that's getting out of hand, the government has to do something to resolve it, to put this to an end. Uh, the police were helpless because the community was not was not cooperating. And their opposition was only likely to get worse over time. So the police assumed that Yasala was cooperating with his grandfather. That if Yasala wanted to be be home with his parents he would have found a way to escape or to somehow identify himself. It must be the kid is cooperating with the grandpa in his own kidnapping, which was partially true, actually, as it turned out. Now, um, further negotiations were attempted by members of Knesset, from the Aguda, but they failed. A culture war was developing between secular Jews and religious Jews. There was even a suggestion by a member of the police that they kidnap a Haredi boy as a countermeasure. Uh, so the, the kidnap a Haredi kid, put him in the secular family, hide him, whatever it is, until the, the starkest people give back Yasala. A, tr- a trade for a trade, one for one. Now, that's a horrible thing to say, absolutely horrible thing. But the police were at a loss for what to do. It reminds me of in, 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 in the Parsha from a few weeks ago when Ruven says, that, If I don't bring Yosef back to, to, uh, to you, uh, Benjamin back to you from Mitzrayim, you can kill my two sons. It's like a ridiculous suggestion. But people are desperate. They make ridiculous suggestions. Okay. Well, where did Yosla actually go? So he was hiding in, in uh, Meir Sharim for a while. But then his uncle took him to Komiut, which is a religious moshav at the Bundaks. And then Uncle Sholem, who had been involved in moving the kid around, fled to London to escape the police. At this point, Aryeh Shechter, who was the shamus to the Stipler Gon, became in charge with hiding Yasala. So Big Gedolim, the Stipler Gon, is involved in this kidnapping. And the Aguda realized we can't get involved anymore. The police are really hot on our, tra- our trail. Let the Naturik Karta handle it. We're out of this. We don't want to be involved anymore. So my, Rabbi Mises calls in Ruth, and he says to her, I have a big mitzvah for you to perform, a big, big mitzvah. Who doesn't want to do a big mitzvah? What's the mitzvah? Get Yosela out of the state of Israel. Take him abroad, somehow, some way. And Ruth says, uh, Rabbi, I'd love to help, but uh, how am I going to do that? You know, there's border controls, there's passport control. How am I going to take a kid out of Israel into a foreign country? So give me a couple of days to think about it. I'll, I'll try to come up with a plan, but let me let me think about it. So Ruth, remember, had been a spy. She had worked for the French. She knew, uh, you know, clandestine activities. So she came up with a plan. What was the plan? Yasala would now become her daughter. I didn't say that wrong. 
I didn't say her son. I said her daughter. Yasala will become a girl. Now, don't worry. There's no sex change operation. There isn't even cosmetic surgery. They would discuss it. They would suggest it. And Yasala refused. He said, if you try to do a cosmetic surgery on me, I will scream and yell and I'll blow your cover. So instead, it was just like minimalistic stuff. He would grow his hair long. She'd put a little makeup on him, put on a dress. Uh, you know, Begadisha situation, but not anything radical. Okay. So the rabbis, when, when Ruth came up with the plan, the rabbi said to her, listen, I don't want to know the details. Better I shouldn't know, because whatever I don't know can't be held against me in a court of law. You do what you got to do. You're the expert. You're the, you're the, the spy. And figure it out. And we just need to know broad details of where the kid is, but not exactly how you pull it off. Okay, well, why is Ruth doing this? Remember, she's a fundamentalist convert who was not satisfied with Reform Judaism. She was not satisfied with modern Orthodox Judaism. She was not even satisfied with Agudah-style Haredi Judaism. She wanted the, the utmost, the Ture Karta. So as far as she's concerned, it is a big mitzvah to save the child from communism and atheism. She fell for that line, that, oh, they're going to move back to Russia. Fine. Well, so she grows the kid's hair, she dolls them up, and on her passport, and in the old days, Passports of parents from certain European countries had the names of their children on the passport, and the document was good for both parent and child. Now, remember, her child's name before he became Uriel was Claude. So if you want to have a girl with the name Claude, what do you do? Claudine. Okay, Claudine, that's the solution. You just add a couple of letters, Claudine. So she's going to have to forge her passport and make Claude into Claudine. Okay, so she goes to Belgium where she learns about the details of the documents in order to forge them better. So, yeah, she, she knows she's, a, she's a smart cookie. She knows what to do. You go, you find the paperwork, and you see how you can best forge it. And Uriel, her son, was involved in making the forgeries. So he was complicit, although he would later regret his actions and apologize for them. So she takes a, a Tzim ship from Milan back to Israel. So she's, she's going by boat, not by plane, but by boat from Italy back to Israel. And she was supposed to have a little girl with her named Claudine. But she doesn't, obviously, because she doesn't really have a daughter. But when she gets to passport control in Milan, when they ask her, where's your daughter? She said, oh, she's over there somewhere. And the guy fell for it. Okay, so she passed. So she gets through the passport control on the way to the boat. But what about on the way off the boat in Israel at Haifa? So there on the boat, she happened to befriend a Moroccan Jewish family making Aliyah. And one of the daughters in this family was named Claudine. Okay, the Kachava, you know, sometimes it's fortuitous. And when they got to passport control, she pretended this Claudine was her daughter. So now she left Italy supposedly with a daughter. She entered Israel, Israel supposedly with a daughter. And what's the plan going to be? She's going to leave Israel again with what looks like a daughter, but is really a boy. Okay, so... Ruth was out of the country only for five weeks as this plan was all coming together. Uh, you know, as, as uh, uh, Hannibal used to say in, in the A-team, I love it when a plan comes together. So she, uh, you know, she figured it all out. But the Aguda was pressuring the Nature Karta to give the boy back to the parents. So if, the, if a kidnapping was really going to happen and take the kid out of the country, it had to happen fast because the pressure is mounting, even within Haredi circles, to put an end to this since it's giving a, the, the, the community a black eye, a shame, a bad name. Okay, well, uh, on June 21st, 1960, Yasala, otherwise known as Claudine, and Ruth go to the airport. And he, she tells Yasala, don't look anybody in the eye. So it's a, f a fuzzy picture on the passport. They deliberately make it a blurry picture. And she says, don't look anybody in the eye. And the, it got th they got through easily. There were no problems. You know, the TSA fouled up there. And they landed in Rome and then went to Switzerland. In Switzerland, they enrolled Yasala in the yeshiva of Rav Moshe Soloveitchik. So big rabbis, the Soloveitchik family is involved in this kidnapping. And Yasala is now no longer Yasala. His new name is Menachem Levi. Menachem Levi. Uh, and he liked it there in the yeshiva. He liked it there. It was a nice yeshiva. Ruth went to Antwerp to try to collect money from the Nintorikarta people there because it's getting expensive here. She has to have, have boat trips, you know, tickets for the airfare. 
and travel expenses. She's doing this out of the goodness of her heart, but she has to be reimbursed for all the travel expenses. So then Rabbi Soloveitchik says, you know, I see I have a kid here, and I know you took him out of Israel, but I need legal papers for him. I don't want to get arrested by the Swiss authorities, me, the, 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 the Rosh Yeshiva being hauled off because we, killed, we kidnapped a kid with no papers. But Ruth had nothing. So it's a tricky, tricky situation. Now Ruth herself um, goes back to Israel in August of 61 and becomes a citizen of Israel which further complicates things. She would later recant her citizenship in 63. It's unclear why she was ever a citizen, but okay, she did in the meantime. Now, the Stipler Gon, big, big rabbi, the father of Rav Kanievsky, he's nominally in charge of where Yosla is going to go. And he knows that Yosla can't stay in the, the yeshiva in Switzerland forever, especially if he has no paperwork. The Stipler suggested, give the kid surgery, but the kid threatened, I'll blow the cover. So they never brought it up again. Um, Ruth ended up not liking the stipler gone because the stipler eventually said, we, we have to end the kidnapping. And Ruth was a dead ender all the way to the last second she wanted this to go through. So Yasala was forced to leave the, the Swiss yeshiva in June of 61, despite liking it there because people recognized his true identity. You know that his picture from when he was little was in the Israeli newspapers. And the yeshiva kids around the world occasionally had copies of the newspaper. And it became apparent that this was the kid. So if the cover was blown, you got to move him to a new location. Well, she took him to a yeshiva in France, a Moroccan yeshiva in France, a Sephardic yeshiva. And Yosela didn't like it at all. Why? Because he spoke Yiddish and, and, and Hebrew, not French and, and, uh, and Arabic. So he's like a fish out of water in this Moroccan yeshiva. And he misses his parents. But he has to move on again because they're finding out who he is. So Ruth wanted him to go to Casablanca, to Morocco, to a Chabad yeshiva there. Um, Yosela didn't want it. But the Chabad yeshivas wouldn't cooperate. And the reason the Chabad yeshivas wouldn't cooperate is because the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who knew about this, even the Lubavitcher Rebbe was complicit in all this, he washed his hands of the kidnapping once the Aguda gave over the job to the Naturikarta. But the Rebbe was not so uh, willing to co- cooperate with the police, meaning he didn't want to know and get involved in ha- how you shift the kid around from one place to another, hide him, no, that I won't do. But I'm not going to rat on my fellow Haredim to the, to the, to the police. That's uh, a moister, he wouldn't do that. Okay, so at the French yeshiva, Yasla was recognized. Ruth wanted Morocco, but Yasla wanted to go to America. Why? Because America is the land of opportunity, the golden of Medina. And Ruth went to America to speak to the Satmar Rebbe. So now who's involved in this? The Stipler Gon is involved. Ritzvi Pesach Frank is involved. The Lubavitcher Rebbe is involved. The Satmar Rebbe is involved. All the Gedolim are involved. They know about this kidnapping. And the police are still in the dark. So Ruth goes to speak to the Satmar Rebbe. And it was a three-hour meeting. The Mossad, and remember, this, this lecture series is about the Mossad. I haven't mentioned the Mossad until right now. The Mossad found out about her meeting with the, the Lasatmer Rebbe because uh, an agent was tipped off by another member of the Satmer community who found it bizarre that a woman without an appointment was able to go to the Rabbi Yoel and spend three hours privately in his office before coming out late at night. So it must have been really important. The, the Mossad figured it must have been about the Yasala affair and that Ruth, whoever she was, was involved in the kidnapping. So when the Satmar Rebbe f- realized who was at his doorstep, that it was Ruth Ben David, Ruth, uh, and, and that she was the uh, the author of the kidnapping, he nearly fainted, and he wanted no part in it. And the reason why he why he not wanted no part in it was because in America you can get the electric chair for kidnapping a child. Now is that true? No, you don't get the electric chair for kidnapping a child. Not in New York State. Not in 1960. So why did the why did the Satmar Rebbe think that? Because sometimes Rebbe's don't know what they're talking about. Okay, plain and simple. As big a Rebbe as he might be, sometimes you live in a, in, a, in a cloistered environment, you think things that just aren't the case. So he didn't want to die. He didn't want to get the electric chair. So he says, no, no, don't get, don't get me involved. But he wasn't going to call the police and say, I have a, a, a woman who's a kidnapper in my office. That he wasn't going to do. So instead, what did he do? 
he put Ruth in connection with the Gertner family. And the Gertner family were from the Malachim. Who are the Malachim? The Malachim are the angels. It was a sect of Hasidus in Brooklyn and the Bronx back in the 30s. 30s through the 60s, 70s. I don't think they exist anymore. Maybe they do, I don't know. Uh, that was like a crossover between Chabad and Satmar. Like, uh, it was neither here nor there. But they were close to Satmar, ideologically. And we'll give, the, we'll, get, we'll give the kid over to one of these Malachim families, and he'll watch the kid in Brooklyn. Fine. Now, Uncle Sholem was arrested in London. Uncle Sholem, who had been involved in the kidnapping and moving around Yerusalem at the beginning, was arrested. And listen to this one. He fought extradition to Israel on the grounds that the crime didn't happen in the state of Israel. Now, wait a second. Where did the crime happen? It happened in Meisharim. Last I checked, Meisharim is in the state of Israel. But no, why not? Because according to the partition plan of 1947, Jerusalem is extraterritorial, and therefore Jerusalem is not the state of Israel. So the state of Israel can't try him for a crime committed in Jerusalem. How do you like that? Okay, well, that was his argument. It didn't hold much water. But he wasn't ex- extradited until November of 62 when this whole thing was over. And in the end, he wasn't really prosecuted because the, the, the government felt it's best to let bygones be bygones. Now, the trip from for, for Ruth with Yasala to America was, was a risky proposition. They went from Brussels rather than from Paris because the Mossad has a field office in Paris and they figured the Mossad was, was scanning the airport. But in Brussels, they'll get away with it. Nobody's watching. And she bought a ticket to Montreal so she could fly into Canada and drive over the U.S.-Canadian border on the assumption that Canadian passport control is not as strong and there'll be no passport control on some back road between uh, uh, Quebec and, and New York State. But what happened was, uh, you know, man tracht and God flacht, man, man, man plans and God laughs. What actually worked out? There was a bad weather where the plane had some sort of engine problem and the flight landed in New York City at Idlewild, you know, JFK, before it was JFK. So now she's really nervous. And Yasala years later said that Ruth the whole time was cu- cool as a cucumber. She never got nervous except for this one instance when they landed at JFK. And she thought, uh-oh, we're doomed. We're going to get caught. But as it turned out, they weren't caught. You know, Ruth was nervous she's going to get the electric chair because that's what the Satmar Rebbe told her. But they, they got right through. And they went to Brooklyn. And Yasala now became Jacob Frankel, Yaakov Frankel. Um, Yasala hated it at the Gertners. He didn't like it there. He was treated badly. He felt it was like a prison. Everybody was afraid of getting caught. They're always nervous. Oh, this kid is going to get us into trouble. So here he's, he's not even wanted. Why did the Gertner family do it? Were they paid? Maybe they got some, some money for it. Uh, uh, was it for the sake of a mitzvah? I don't know. I think they got paid for it. But Yasala was misbehaving. Because when, when you're not happy in a, in a new place where you're being kidnapped, sometimes you lash out. And it was felt that they needed a new place for him. So Ruth went to, uh, who, who was her next target? Rav Aaron Cutler of Lakewood, the base mentorship of us. And now, now Rav Aaron Cutler knows about it too. Every guttle knows about it, except Rav Moshe. Rav Moshe was, was, was in, the, in the clear. No, don't blame him. But Rav Aaron Cutler absolutely refused. He says, I want nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with you. He passed away shortly thereafter, 1962. Now, Pesach 1962, there's a message to New York from Israel that the, the Gedolim want this to come to an end. It's gone on too long. The shenanigans have to come to, a, to an end. Bring back the boy. Bring back the boy. The Haredi community is in danger. But Ruth takes a hard line. And this is her cause to fight to the end. Not the Gedolim, not the rabbis. It's her cause. And so she has a new idea. She's going to take Yosela back to the, to square one, fly him to Jordan, go through Mandelbaum Gate in East Jerusalem, back to West Jerusalem, and hide him again in Meishara. Okay, but it didn't work out because it was felt that there was no way he could get him on the plane unless he unless he changed his appearance with surgery. And he doesn't want to do surgery, so they gave up. He'll stay with the Gertner family. He doesn't like it. They don't like him. But all right, it's the it's the only option left. Now, let's get to the Mossad angle. In March of 62, now two years more, about 27 months after the initial kidnapping, 
David Ben-Gurion calls Isser Harel, the head of the Mossad, into his office. Remember that this is about a year, uh, two years after the Eichmann capture, and about two months before Eichmann's execution. And Harel said, uh, Ben-Gurion says, can you find the boy? Can you find the boy? And Harel says, yeah, I'll do my best. I'll try my best. Harel said that Yossela was the most challenging case he ever dealt with, even more challenging than I Why? Well, the Mossad arguably should not have taken this case on at all. And many of the agents in the field, in Mossad, Shinbet, and elsewhere, said this is a mistake. It's wrong to waste the resources of the government's clandestine services on finding one little yeshiva kid. You know, there are, there are, there are Arabs out to kill us. There are German Nazis to be caught. There are rocket scientists to kill. There's a lot, a lot of things, a lot of people to kill out there for Israel, right? Bad guys. And to waste all these resources and so many agents and money on chasing a yeshiva boy, it's wrong. Okay, but why did the Mossad agree to do it? Why did Ben Green think it was necessary? The answer is because you have to prevent a malignant disease from spreading in the national body politic. That you can't have. Elements within society that ignore, that flout the law of the state, that think that they're a state unto themselves, that the, the Haredi community has to be brought into line, and they have to be told, you can't commit crimes, ideological crimes. Okay? So, uh, very quickly, they realized, the Mossad realized, that the Aguda doesn't have the kid, and the kid is probably not even in Israel. The problem is most of the agents don't speak Yiddish and don't know yeshiva culture and Haredi culture. So if you try to embed them in the Turekarta communities elsewhere, they're going to stick out like a sore thumb. Um, the assumption was the kid is probably either in a, an Arab country with a Chabad or maybe in America. But um, where? We don't know exactly. So Isser Harel sets up shop in Paris. He moves his, he, he has a bed, a little small bed in an apartment in Paris for the Mossad headquarters. And he's going to stay there until we find this boy, until we find him. The suspicion fell on a certain Yerachmiel Dome of London, uh, because this Dome character who had money had paid for the legal aid to Uncle Shalom. So obviously if somebody has money is paying for legal aid for a guy who's caught up in the, in the crime, this guy must know what's going on. And Harel then moved, ruled out Chabad. He said, Chabad, it can't be them. It's got to be Satmar or Naturei Karta. So, the agents, having had no success, just Harel theorizing who he thinks has the kid, the agents get frustrated with their lack of success, and they want to stop. And they have to be told, no, no, we're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep looking until we find the kid. Harel uh, realized that Ruth could be a key player here, because of that meeting with Rabbi Yol Teitelbaum, the Satmar Rebbe in Brooklyn. And Isser Harel knew Ruth's son, Uriel, from a totally different context. Sometimes it's a small world, and things just come together randomly, or not so randomly. How did Isser Harel know Uriel ben David? Because Uriel ben David, or Claude, had a Lebanese girlfriend. Now, wait a second. He's an Orthodox yeshiva kid. He's a Lebanese girlfriend? Ah, she was Jewish, Lebanese Jewish girlfriend. And how can he visit her? He's an Israeli citizen. Israel, Israelis can't go to Lebanon. Aha, but he's also a French citizen. And French citizens can go to Lebanon. So he goes in the French passport and he visits the girlfriend. Okay, fine. And he comes up with a plan to rescue Lebanese and Syrian uh, Jewish girls, get them out of the country and go to Israel. It's a nice idea. So he talks it over with the key, key figures in, in, uh, in Israel. And that's how Isra Harel knew who he was. Fine. It's a scheme. Well, um, Isra Harel has an idea. We're going to follow Ruth Ben David. We're going to find her, wherever she is, presumably in France. And uh, how are we going to know where she is? We're going to tell Uriel that he's going to go on a mission for us, but that he's going to disappear for a few weeks. And he should write a letter to his mother letting her know that she shouldn't worry about where he is. And then they're going to they're going to check the mailboxes in France 
where they think Ruth might be. And when she gets the letter from her son, they're going to follow her. Okay, it's a nice idea. And they're successful in tracking down Ruth. But the agents lose the trail. So, you know, it was a nice idea, but it, it didn't work uh, completely. Um, then they're able to, to find Ruth again by happenstance. They spot her another in a car in London. Okay, they know where she is. And Harrell decides it's time to grab Ruth. It's time to grab her off the street. They're going to kidnap her off the street. So they know that she has a property in France, in Orléans, and she wants to sell it. So they pretend to be buyers of a property, and they, they arrange a meeting with the agent, with the real estate agent. But then they, when they want to do the closing, they say, we want to do the closing, but only in the, in the physical presence of the seller. We want to meet the seller. And we want to do it in our lawyer's office. So they arrange a meeting. And it's supposed to be at a, at a, actually at a hotel lobby. But the lawyer doesn't show up. It's bad weather. There's a train strike. Let's go. We'll, we'll take a car to, to where he, he has his, his headquarters. They get in a car with Ruth. And lo and behold, they grab her. And now she's in Mossad custody. So by hook or by crook, the Mossad kidnapped a French citizen on French soil. That's a risky proposition. Yeah, you shouldn't really shouldn't do that. Yeah, and then in general, the Mossad doesn't tries not to do that to kidnap people, citizens of a country in that country. Okay, but Ruth now is in Jewish control in a Mossad safe house in Paris. Well, um, they're going to interrogate her, and at first, she denies knowing knowing anything. She doesn't know. She claims she doesn't know who the kid is. But eventually she is willing to acknowledge, yeah, yeah, I know where the kid is, but I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. So uh, what do they do? They figure they'll wear her out. You know, if, you, if you're interrogating someone, if you uh, after enough time passes, you, you wear them down. You, you beat it out of them without physical force. No physical force was used here. Show me the gear. Show me the gear. No physical force. But they didn't wear her out. She wore them out. She was emotionally stronger than the agents were. And they, they're going nowhere. Then Shabbos comes. What do you do with Shabbos? Okay, she wants to have alakasneros, candle lighting, and food, kosher, uh, all this stuff. She wants a sitter to daven from. So they brought in Yehudit Nisiyahu. Remember, Yehudit Nisiyahu from, from the Eichmann story she was the, the, the woman, the female Mossad agent who pretended to be the wife uh, at the headquarters when they captured Eichmann. She did the cooking and she gave the pretense that this was like a couple on vacation. So Yehudit was was a, a, a well-known in her time, a female Mossad agent. In this case, she she was responsible for the kashris of the food and she solved all the yichud problems. It would be a yichud problem, a seclusion, if a male agent was alone with Ruth. And Ruth is a very from woman. You know, she's a kidnapper, but she's a very from woman. So now you have a female agent that solves the yichud problems. Okay, fine. Well, after Havdalah, they resumed the interrogation. And they found an address book in her, in her, her bag. And some of the addresses included New York City. So they're thinking the kid might be in New York. But uh, then they take Uriel in for questioning in Israel. And Uriel was told that if you tell us the truth, you and your mother will face no prosecution. That's very nice. A sweetheart deal. So he sings. He talks. But, but bear in mind, Uriel really was a Zionist. He didn't really like this kidnapping. He wasn't so happy with, with his, what his mother did. His mother was a Meshuggah, a Haredi lunatic. He was a normal Jew. Okay? So he, he said whatever he knew. He said, I was involved in the beginning. I don't know where the kid is now, but I was involved. And then they tell Ruth, you know, by the way, your son, he he spoke, he 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 confessed, and if you don't tell us what's going to happen, he's going to go to jail. So now Ruth is wondering, all right, what should I do? My son could go to jail. All right, she's about to break down. On June twenty sixth, uh, Isser Harel himself gets involved in the in the in the questioning, and Ruth is ready to mentally collapse. She's 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 had it. She's finally breaking down. But she wonders, how do I know that you really represent the Israeli government? And the, the, the deal you cut with me, that you're offering me of no prosecution, 
actually is true. Maybe you're lying. How can I trust you? And a very unusual thing happened at this point. Isser Harel, who, by the way, at that time, it was illegal for the Israeli press to, to reveal the name of the head of the Mossad. It's not until the last like, 10, 15 years that the public at large knows the identity of the head of the Mossad. For years and years and years, it was a secret. I mean, it was a kind of an open secret among the media and among the high-ranking officials, but it was still a secret. So Harel, who always traveled on a fake passport, showed Ruth his real passport with his actual name, Isser Harel. And the other agents were like, crazy, what? what is you? You're nuts. You're showing this woman your real identity? And he said, I have to, because I'm going to win her over, not with threats, not with physical violence, but with moral suasion. That Moral suasion will, will, will finally get her to give up on the kidnapping and return the child to, to the rightful parents. So I have to be honest with her if I expect her to be honest with me. Very interesting idea, what Harrell did there. Okay, so Ruth finally breaks down and says, fine, 126 Penn Street, Brooklyn, New York, the Gertner family. She gave up the information. And the boy's name is Yankala. So she thought that Uriel had given up the information under torture. She was later really upset when she found out that, no, Uriel had spoken freely and she disowned her son. They later had a, had a, recon, a reconciliation, but Ruth's nuts. So she, for a while, she disowned her son. Okay, now, right after Ruth gave this information, according to one version of the story, Isra Harel said, thank you, madam. Now, would you like a job with the Mossad? Uh, and she supposedly said no. But her activities in the 1980s would indicate that she actually did continue later on her clandestine work and possibly working for spy services. Okay. So um, the the information got back to Israel and then the, that information was sent uh, to the New York consulate and the FBI. But the FBI did nothing for three days, despite the fact that they had the address of the kid. The kid was kidnapped and he's staying in New York and Brooklyn. The FBI did nothing. So on Saturday, June 30th, 1962, Isser Harel called Abe Harmon, the Israeli ambassador to the United States, on an unsecured line. And they knew the phone line was being tapped by the CIA. And Harel complains that the Attorney General, Robert Kennedy, is dropping the ball here. That he doesn't know what he's doing, he's failing, that we, they, they, they have the information, the kid is available, and they, and they won't do anything. Now, why did, why did Isra Harrell say this on an unsecured line? He wanted Robert Kennedy to hear this and to know that the Israelis were, were bothered and they could leak the information further. And it worked. That very night, uh, the Justice Department tells the FBI, pick up the boy. Go to Brooklyn to the address and pick up the boy. And they do. So the question is, why did Ch- Kennedy delay in the first place? And why did he change his mind? So it might have been that they were working out a deal for the uh, extradition of Robert Soblin, who was a spy who worked against the Americans and uh, had an Israeli connection. It was a Soviet spy. It was a Soviet spy. That may have been the angle. Alternatively, alternatively, it was an election year and the Democrats did not want to alienate the Satmar vote in Brooklyn. So they could lose, the Democrats could lose a House seat if uh, if if the Justice Department is seen as smashing down the door of a house in in, in Williamsburg, um, that may have been a consideration as well. Okay, so they they pick up the boy, and they take him to a safe house. The next day, Yassela's mother and sister come from Israel, and at first he denied being Yassela. He says, "No, I'm Yankala Frankel. I'm not Yassela Schumacher." But after an hour, he said, Mommy, Mommy, I love you. He broke down. Remember, the kid's nine years old. So 10 years old at that point. And he was happy to see his mommy. Yosola went home. And what happened to him? He went to a, re- a religious uh, Zionist school at first, the school, but he didn't like it. He ended up in a secular school. That's not to say that he became a Chiloni entirely. No, no, he still davened. He was still a traditional Jew. 
but he felt more comfortable in a secular environment after having what happened to him in, in the Haredi environment. Um, he never again saw his grandfather. He hated his grandfather. He went to his grandfather's funeral three years later, but never saw him alive again. He reconciled with his grandmother. Uh, and at one point, he went back to his old shul from where he had been physically kidnapped. And people looked at him. He was jo- joining the minion. And if, you know, five years earlier, they had been, he had been kidnapped in that spot. Must have been a really awkward moment for the millionaires to see the kid and wonder, what's he doing here? Okay. Um, often there was a, a deal uh, uh, proposed for Yasala and Ruth to meet again. Because remember, Ruth didn't go to jail. He was living in, in B'nai Brak like, like before, and, uh, in Mea Shem like before. So would Ruth and Yasala ever meet again? He said, I will agree to on one condition. She has to apologize. And she never apologized. She always refused to apologize till the day she died. It never happened. In 1977, Yasala, then a 25-year-old young man, got married. And who was under the chuppah with him? Esther Harel. The former head of the Mossad attended the chuppah for his old friend Yasala Schumacher. Uh, Yasala forgave everyone except for Ruth and Uncle Shalom. Uncle Shalom was a real sc- scoundrel. Now, in 2021, so we're talking three years ago, Yasala and Uriel had a meeting. So here, the, the, the son of Ruth and Yasala are getting together, and it was live on the TV cameras. It was shown on Israeli television for like uh, old time's sake. And they had a meeting, and they apologized, and they hug, and they make up, and, you know, Shalom al Yisrael. Very nice, very nice. Uh, Ruth was, was allowed to come back to Israel after she was uh, accosted by the Mossad in, in Paris, and no charges were filed. Did she work for the Mossad later on? Uh, maybe. We don't really know. She tried to spark a diplomatic rift between Israel and France in late 1962 by writing a letter to the president of France complaining that she as a French citizen was kidnapped on French soil and that uh, uh, Israel should pay the price in terms of its diplomatic relations with France. But nothing came from that. Well, in the in the long run, what was the point? What was the, the relevance of this whole story? Where's Yasala? Aside from the, the interesting quirks of the story. The point is that never again, never again, would there be a grotesque violation of state sovereignty by a fundamentalist religious group? That, yeah, sure, there'd be some, some protests and throw rocks on Shabbos and Rehov Barilan. Okay, fine. At the margins, there's, you know, some, some bad behavior by people who, who, who reject the, the Zionism and reject the state. But you would never again have like life and death and serious uh, ideological crime along the lines of the, the Yasala kidnapping. Everyone came to realize the state is the boss and you follow the rules. Uh, and that was Ben-Gurion's ultimate agenda here, Mamlach Tiyut, the sovereignty of the state above all other institutions, especially and in including religious institutions, the, rab- you know, the, the, the unofficial rabbinate, the Haredi community, the state is the boss, End of story. Okay. So with that, I will take some questions. Let me unmute everybody in Secunda. Allow participants to Okay. Any questions? Okay. Rabbi? Hi. Yes. Me. Just for my own clarification, because I'm fuzzy on it. You mentioned Vichy France, and you mentioned, and then there was occupied France, right? Yeah. You yeah. Could- a quick refresher about the difference between the two <clears throat> the two areas, especially when it came to Jews and the resistance. Because there are a lot of collaborationists in France. Now, okay, so so Vichy France existed from uh, the fall of Paris in this early summer of 1940 up until late 1942, uh, at, at which point even that was eliminated, and the whole, whole the whole of France became occupied France. But from a Jewish point of view, neither place was was good, because certainly occupied France, you could be deported to Auschwitz. Uh, but even Vichy France, so the the Vichy were collaborationists. If the if the Gestapo wanted people, they handed them over. Uh, it, it, you were you were really not, not any safer having gone southward. Uh, you had to get to, into, into Spain or Portugal if you if you wanted to, or, or Switzerland if you wanted to be safe. But for a regular German, for a regular Parisian, what was the difference for him 
if he lived in a in a uh, fishy or you know I I I'm I'm not going to answer that because I don't really know all that well what the answer is I'm not going to speculate we have uh, some French citizens on the on the Zoom right now who might know it better than me so who am I to say? But okay, so you're really saying that it's one and the same, basically. From a Jewish point of view, yeah. yeah. Okay. One more question. Okay. Anybody else? Wasn't the uh, the um, Claude? Wasn't he su substantially older than than Yosela? How could she? Yeah, that's a good. Po that's a good point. So Claude was born 1940. Yosela was born 1952. He's 12 years older. So the, the paperwork had to be forged, and and dates had to be changed, but. With good callig calligraphy skills, you can you can fake the numbers. Uh, I, I just else? want to say, yeah. I just want to say that in Vichy, France, uh, the French police arrested Jews and gave them over to the Germans. Yeah, uh, I have family who ended up in Auschwitz, and they were in, in Vichy side of France. They were arrested and given over to you know to Germans. So. It wasn't good in either place. Maybe it was maybe easier to, to to hide a little bit easier, but there was still a lot of risk that the French police was collaborating with with the German authorities and delivering juice to them. Okay, folks, a good night to one and all. Our next uh, class will be in two weeks, and the topic will be the German scientists, the rocket scientists in Egypt, and the Mossad's efforts to eliminate them. All right, uh, folks, stay tuned. Be well.